Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to Patreon.com slash BP Show. Patreon.com slash BP Show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Robert Mueller subpoenas documents from the Trump Organization about Donald Trump's financial dealings with Russia. Did Mueller cross Trump's red line? Hey, what do you say, folks? Here we are on a Friday, believe it or not, me on a Friday. The Bill Press Show, coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., with all the news of the day. And there is lots of it, on the, particularly on the uh, Russian front, uh, where, um, yes, uh, Robert Mueller diving into Donald Trump's mysterious business relationships with Russia and other foreign countries and what impact they may have had on the Trump campaign and Russia's attempts to influence this election. At the same time, Donald Trump finally waking up and slapping some sanctions on Russia months after Congress approved those sanctions uh, with only five dissenting votes out of 535. What the hell took Donald Trump so long? Uh, And Stormy Daniels looks like somebody in the Trump organization. Not just Trump's attorney was involved in making that big $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels. She will just not go away. Neither will we, neither will you. Will you? We got all the news of the day for you. Can't wait to jump in and hear your comments. Don't forget, you know how to do it. Go on Twitter. It doesn't belong to Donald Trump. It belongs to all of us. Go on Twitter. Send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. Yes, indeed. Lots to talk about. Get ready. Rock and roll. But first... This is the there Full we go. Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. This is without a doubt my favorite story of the day. Because right. remember, okay. yes. we've talked before about twin brothers Mark Kelly and Scott Kelly, yes. the astronauts. Yes. So Scott, identical. Scott Kelly, right? they're identical twins. Used well, to be. they were <laughs> identical twins. Scott <laughs> Kelly went to the International Space Station and spent a year in space. So the whole point of this was to see how being in space for that long impacted right. their genes. I know. Yeah. So now he's back. They've now looked at him. They've now done a lot of tests, and it turns out they are no longer identical twins. 
They are no longer genetically the same. His DNA is 7% different. But they say, like, the point is you go to space and obviously your genes change, but then they usually when you come back, they they reacclimate to Earth's climate and Earth's atmosphere and all of that. But 7% of his genes did not return to normal after he came back to Earth. So yesterday, <laughs> Scott Kelly tweeted out, what, my DNA changed by 7%? Who knew? I just learned about it in this article. Could be good news. I no longer have to call Mark Kelly my identical twin brother anymore. Right. So they are no longer identical twins. But So he is not the same man who went into space who came back. Not no. the same man came back. No. That is amazing. Is that wild? Yeah, Like, I can't wild. even right. wrap my head around that story. He went to space, no. and he completely changed. But that, that that decided it for me when I read that story. I am I've decided I am not going to go into space. Well, it depends. If you don't like who you are, go, oh, that's go, true. go yeah. to space. Come back mm-hmm. a little different, right? <laughs> uh, this next story, Bill, I want to tell you, yeah. it's not funny. We Maybe should... that could be part of our criminal justice system. <laughs> go to space. We want to get come the, back a changed we person. We want to get the evil out of some of these people. Yeah, we sent him up there for a few years. <laughs> That's a good idea. It's one way to do it. Uh, this next story is not funny, and we should not be right, happy I'm about this in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> but Vanessa Trump filed for divorce oh, yes, against Trump. Donald Trump Jr. yesterday in Manhattan Supreme Court. They were married for 12 years. They put out a statement to page six, of course. Quote, after 12 years of marriage, we have decided to go our separate ways. Uh, so they are no longer going to be a couple. They uh, are no. separating. And it's sad to see it happen. They have five kids. Yeah. Right? Uh, but I got to say, I think their marriage lasted longer than any Donald Trump, than any of his daddy's marriages I think have that's lasted. Right. right? I think that's I mean, right. 12 years. For, for a Trump, that's a long time. That's, yeah. It's a record for a Trump. This is the Bill Press Show. And on a big Friday, Friday, March 16, what do you say, folks? Gearing up for St. Patrick's Day tomorrow and ending a big news week. It is the Bill Press Show coming to you live from our nation's capital with all the news of the day. Reaching out to you nationwide, coast to coast, and great to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. For our little round robin of the news of the day with a great lineup of guests and lots and lots to uh, talk about as we join you coast to coast online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Check it out and uh, sign up as part of The Bill Press Show team. And don't forget, check out our podcast, too. More and more of you do. And it's a great way to catch up with the show later in the day because not all of you can be here uh, as we uh, do the first round in the morning. Uh, but you can catch up with the entire show, part of the show, by just going to our podcast, wherever you find your podcast, or go to our uh, website, billpressshow.com. Joining you on the great WCPT out in Chicago, Indiana Talks throughout the state of Indiana and nationwide also on the great Free Speech TV. Yes, indeed, the big stories we're following. Robert Mueller, subpoena issuing a subpoena to the Trump Organization for documents related to Donald Trump's previous business deals with Russia. The Trump White House yesterday finally slapping some sanctions on Russia. It also came out that the Trump Organization itself, an official there, 
uh, was involved in the payment to Stormy Daniels of that $130,000. And more and more people are accepting the fact that uh, Connor Lamb won Pennsylvania's 18th Congressional District. Stop whining and just accept the fact. Yeah, let's start with, and by the way, we are keeping our eyes also on that tragic situation down in Miami. Unbelievable. One week ago tomorrow, that new pedestrian bridge put in place, inaugurated, everybody crowing about this is the latest in uh, superstructure construction, how fast they can do it, how fast they can move it in with such little disruption, and how safe it is. And as the last time I checked, there were six killed yesterday when that bridge collapsed. There were no pedestrians on it because it had not been open for pedestrian use yet. It's a but, wild story. But there were cars going under it, and those cars were like pancakes. I mean, you know, yeah. it's just, it was just the, the uh, interviews I saw was right. I was at CNN just when it happened, and it was, it was really horrible to watch. Uh, reminded me of that uh, earthquake in San Francisco when the uh, East Bay Freeway collapsed like that, one, one level down on another. This yeah, was the yeah, bridge yeah. down on that street. Uh, and, um, boy, hell to pay for that one. No, I mean, it, 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 like you said, it's brand new. Yeah. And it was really shocking because yesterday you could see all of the uh, um, social media posts from the like the Florida uh, Uni- International University that, that was yeah. down there where this, this pedestrian bridge was and everybody talking about how great it was and the sort of commemorating ceremony that it's open. And it was just a couple of days ago. I know. And the speeches from that uh, day were all talking about, again, marveling at this new kind of construction and, and then this this is a way to get things done in the 21st century and the whole thing. And uh, CBS News had an excellent report last night that this company that built the bridge has had some real problems. They've had other bridges collapse as well, and they've been fined. They've been sued for not for, for violations. And so um, maybe somebody should have <clears throat> done a little vetting of a contractor. Oh, man, that's right. so sad. Yeah, we'll uh, find out more about that and keep uh, keep our eye on that. Uh, the big story politically again is Robert Mueller. Yesterday, the news broke uh, from the uh, from the uh, bro- the New York Times broke the story. Boy, again, that investigative reporting unit, the New York Times, particularly Maggie Haberman, they are dynamite. Uh, headline in the Times this morning. This broke yesterday afternoon, but this morning's paper trumpets it. Mueller demands Trump's company surrender files. Uh, Court order seeks documents on Russia. Investigation nears president. Yeah, it is closing in tighter and tighter on Donald Trump. So uh, let's just put this in context. We've talked for a long time, and everybody's asked this question. What's up with Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin? I mean, why why still hasn't he condemned Russia for trying to undermine our democracy? It doesn't matter who won or who lost. The Russians are trying to undermine our democratic system. Donald Trump has still not accepted it, not admitted it, and not condemned it. Why, uh, when Donald uh, Vladimir Putin still has troops in eastern Ukraine, hasn't Donald Trump done anything? I mean, yeah, Barack Obama should have done something about Crimea, but Donald Trump hasn't done anything about uh, Putin seizing Crimea either. Uh, it means so much that, that Putin has done, and Donald Trump, hasn't hasn't said one pardon me critical word about Vladimir Putin at all and everybody keeps asking what's going on what is it with him and Putin right could there be some business deals old business deals 
uh, between them? Does Donald Trump owe a lot of money to Russian banks? Do they have some dirt on him? What's going on? Well, that's sort of been this deep, murky hole, unexplored hole of the whole Trump-Russian connection. And that's where Robert Mueller now is going because he has subpoenaed documents about Donald Trump's business ties with Russia, and by the way, the United Arab Emirates too, but particularly with Russia, before he became president, before he even became a candidate. And are there some ties there that indicate that Russia's got something on Donald Trump, and that's why they wanted to help him become president, and that's why Donald Trump hasn't said anything or done anything about it. Uh, and so, But this really does close in. I mean, you, first of all, remember, according to the White House lawyers and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the Mueller investigation was going to be over a long time ago, right? Yeah, yeah. They kept saying, oh, early spring at the latest, right? End of last year. Yeah, well, guess what? This is an indication, if you needed any, that this thing ain't about to wind down anytime soon. It's just getting started. It is just getting started. And he is now, and again, everything we hear gets closer and closer and closer to the Oval Office. Michael Flynn, right? <laughs> Can't get much closer than that. And and all the, all the, all the rest of them, and Manafort and Gates and Papadopoulos. So, but this particularly, this is Donald Trump. Trump. This is not Manafort's financial dealings, Rick Gates. No, this is Donald Trump and the Trump Organization. And what's interesting about this is that it was back last summer when Donald Trump was asked, uh, uh, sitting down with some New York Times reporters, now what would happen if Robert Mueller starts looking at your financial transactions? Mueller was looking at your finances, your family's finances, unrelated to Russia. Is that a red line? Would that be a breach of what his actual... I would say yes. Yeah, I would say yes. I would say yes, Donald Trump says, that that could be a red line. Now, notice they say financial transactions, family business unrelated to Russia. So you could argue, well, this is, however, related to Russia. But they're definitely getting into family, Trump organization, Ties with Russia, which, which, by the way, are enormous. Trump insists that he, uh, at one time, never made any money from Russia. I don't, I mean, it's possible that it's condo or something. So, you know, I sell a lot of condo units mm-hmm. and somebody, somebody from Russia buys a condo. Who knows? I don't make money from Russia. Yeah. Now, the fact is, again, we don't know the true story, but they had all kinds of dealings with Russia. I mean, li- listen to him in that. Cl- I just yeah. want to play this again. Listen to the beginning yeah. of the clip where he just he right. essentially goes, I yeah. don't know. I don't. I mean, it's possible that it's condo or something. So, you know, I sell a lot of condo units and somebody, somebody no. from Russia buys a condo. Who knows? Who knows? No. I don't make right. money from Russia. So he's saying, like, maybe yeah. they're buying. Yeah. I don't know. He I'm knows. not really sure. He knows. He knows. He knows. Right. But, you know, look, if you read Fire and Fury, if you read the Christopher Steele dossier, uh, if you read anything about Donald Trump at that time, he was up to his armpits trying to make deals in Russia, trying to build tower about trying to build a big hotel in Moscow. Remember, trying to build towers down on the uh, on the Black Sea. He had the Russians were buying condos in New York in Trump Tower. They owned condos. They had offices there down at the uh, Trump thing that where he just lost the name down in Soho, which Ivanka Trump was running. They uh, they had um, they had they were buying condos there. He was again awash in Russian money, 
Um, he took the Miss Universe contest to Moscow, invited Pudi to come himself. They had, and then, of course, we know there was the the sleazy stuff that Christopher Steele reported on, which hasn't been confirmed, which I think probably happened as well. So there are all these mysterious ties, and now Robert Mueller is uh, is getting right into it. Plus, at one point during the recession, uh, Donald Trump Jr. was asked, boy, um, it must be tough on you now raising money for projects for for the Trump organization. And Donald Trump Jr. actually said, oh, no, we don't have any problem. You know, we're getting all our money from the Russians. Whoops. Yeah, quote, unquote, Whoops. we're getting all our money from the Russians. So this does get right to the heart of the matter. Uh, this could bring the whole thing down. And I have always felt that it's going to be the financial dealings with Donald Trump and the Russians that bring him down. It's not going to be um, anything else. They may never prove collusion, uh, but they're, but they're, I think they're going to prove that Donald Trump was for sale, uh, which, which, is, uh, which is even worse. So back to this red line deal. That's the question people are asking yesterday. Does this cross, does, in Donald Trump's mind, has Robert Mueller crossed the red line? Meaning, would that, could that prompt him to actually try to get Robert Mueller fired? Which means Jeff Sessions can't do it, so he'd have to fire Rod Rosenstein, or maybe he'd have to fire Jeff Sessions first. He'd have to fire two or three people to finally get somebody to fire Robert Mueller. But if he does that, I think everybody agrees, that would provoke a constitutional crisis. That might be the red line for members of Congress to finally get up and do something uh, about um, uh, Donald Trump and uh, the cozy relationship with Russia. But this is the most important uh, bit of news that we've had out of the Mueller investigation since its beginning. This is the most significant thing that Robert Mueller has done and again, this gets us closer and closer. Right now, it is all about Donald Trump. It's not about any of these other these other players. And what's ironic about that is that yesterday is also the day, um, I think it's three months after Congress, with only five dissenting votes in both the Senate and the House. Now, stop. Stop. Just slow down just a second. Just hear what I said, okay? There are 535 members of the House and Senate. Can you imagine any other issue on which you could get only five no votes, right? No. No. I mean, you'd get more than five votes against honoring Billy Graham, you know. I mean, I'd, <laughs> right. be, I'd be one of them. But, <laughs> um, but no. So Congress overwhelmingly passed these sanctions three months ago, and Donald Trump refused to put them in place. Finally, yesterday, he did. Some of them, not all of them, but sanctions against some individuals and some entities, by the way, including the 13 individuals that Robert Mueller already indicted for trying to undermine the American election. So Donald Trump, why did he wait so long? Did the pressure just finally build? And, and finally, somebody in the White House said, look, Mr. President, you just got to do something about here. You just can't. Let the Congress act and you do nothing. That indicates that you really are Putin's buddy. So they came out with these sanctions. But, and by the way, better late than never? Nah, maybe, right? I think he did the right thing in putting the sanctions on, but why the hell do you wait so long? That still raises that question, what has Putin got on him? But the big thing is 
by putting these sanctions on the Russians, Donald Trump proves that what Robert Mueller is doing is not a witch hunt. Think about that. Donald Trump has just validated everything that Robert Mueller has done. He has proven, he has certified with these sanctions that Robert Mueller is right, that Russia was trying to interfere with the American election, and therefore they have to be punished, and therefore they have to be sanctioned. So I'm not saying he'll stop, but Donald Trump can no longer call this a witch hunt because he has just validated Robert Mueller's investigation. It's a good point. Right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. It ain't no witch hunt. Huh? Apparently not. It was bad enough. We got to put sanctions on him. Man. Right. No, no. That, that, that totally makes sense. Yeah. So the two of them are really, really uh, related. And one other final Russian thing with uh, Donald Trump yesterday. Uh, again, after not saying anything for days, uh, finally Donald Trump uh, did speak out about uh, the poisoning of this Russian diplomat and his adult daughter uh, by Russian spies on British soil. Uh, for which uh, Theresa May retaliated right away and expelled uh, 23 Russian diplomats. Uh, Donald Trump didn't quite blame or charge Vladimir Putin, but he came as close as he ever has. I spoke with the prime minister, and we are uh, in deep discussions, a very sad situation. It certainly looks like the Russians Mm. were behind it. Oh, certainly looks like. Yeah, after Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, said, damn right it was the Russians that did this. And probably, no doubt about it. probably the final straw that got Rex Tillerson fired. Yeah, yeah, right. A couple days later, Donald Trump agrees with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty perfect. And, I mean, that sounds like Trump. <laughs> yeah, certainly looks like. Now, I'm not going to accuse them. Vladimir, I'm not blaming you, buddy, right? But it just looks like it, like you have maybe a little perception uh, problem. Yeah. Speaking of perception problems, Donald Trump got caught in one of his own big lies when it comes to, uh, we know how fast and loose he is with the, uh, with the facts, and he doesn't care about the facts. Uh, he just makes his charges and, 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 and makes his whatever statements, and then, you know, you have to kind of clean up after him. Uh, clean up on aisle seven. Um, and so, but he admitted uh, at, at a fundraiser in or a little reception private party in, in Missouri this week that when he got together with a Canadian prime minister, who's a great guy and one of our strongest, longest allies, right? Um, and, uh, you know, Trudeau and Barack Obama were such almost the same person, right? Bromance. Young, yeah, yeah bromance. And so I, I always thought it was strange that Trudeau was cozying up to Donald Trump. But it's an important relationship. And I think he felt whoever the American president is, we got to be friends. And so he really t- tried. But it turns out Donald Trump was lying to his face. And he bragged about lying to his face and telling Trudeau, oh, this is terrible because we have this horrible trade deficit with Canada. And Trudeau said, well, no, you don't, Mr. President. Actually, you have a And Trump said, no, I know what I'm talking about. You're wrong. I'm right. And he admitted this week he just made it all up. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about this yesterday uh, at the press briefing. And she just, what do the Trumps do? They just double down and lie even more. 
The president was accurate because there is a trade deficit, and that was the point he was making, uh, is that he didn't have to look at the specific figures because he knew that there was a trade deficit, uh, whether they got down into the dollar amount or not. There is a trade deficit between the two countries. No, there's not. No, there is not. Uh, according to the Department of Commerce, I checked it this morning, The Depart- our Trump administration, Department of Commerce, says in 2017, which is the latest year we have numbers for, of course, yeah. we actually had a 12.2.7, rather, $2.7 billion surplus with Canada. And that's been the case for a couple of years now. Yeah. I mean, actually, it was like $200 billion yeah. the year before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is not true. Just simply not true. And Trump's kind of justifies this as well. It is with like most countries. Well, yeah, but it's not with Canada. <laughs> yeah, he, how do you lie, looking the guy in the eye, lie to one of our longest, strongest allies? You be Donald Trump. That's how. That's how you do it. I guess but it's like, yeah. you know, a- after this story came out, and after it turns out that it was completely bogus, he put out a tweet yesterday that, that was essentially like, "We have trade deficits all over the world. Like we have trade deficits everywhere," and. I'm not sure what data he's using, but it's just not true, mm-hmm. as, you've, no. as you pointed yeah. out. Like, it yeah. is just not true. And you could go through and you could cherry pick small pockets of trade, right? Like, there's goods and services, and, like, if you look at just goods, maybe. I mean, but that's not how this data is looked at, no, by no, the way. No. Let's say, for example, I'm making this up. Sure. But I would imagine when it comes to timber— that we have a trade deficit with Canada. They Fair. probably send more timber in here, yeah. just given the sure. nature, right? Sure. Than we send to Canada. Sure. They don't need wood up there. I mean, they got to yeah. look at all the forests they got, right? Right, right, right? I would imagine on that area. Okay, but that's one little piece of the exactly. puzzle. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In the big picture, like you said, it's not true. Right. It's yeah. just not true. Right. Uh, meanwhile, uh, he might be able to sweep a lot of other uh, things under the rug. He cannot sweep Stor- Stormy Daniels under the rug, no matter hard he tries, how hard he tries. Uh, and that is interesting. But yesterday, the latest on that, just uh, not spent a lot of time on it, is that uh, it came out that this $130,000 uh, payment from Stormy Daniels, which Michael Cohen, the president's attorney, said he did all on his own. The president knew nothing about it. Nobody in the organization knew anything about it. He just did it out of the goodness of his heart, uh, took out an extra little money out of his mortgage and paid her $130,000 to shut up about this affair that she had with uh, Donald Trump starting in 2006, right after the birth of Barron Trump. Uh, well, yesterday we discovered, we learned that that's not true either. The Trump organization uh, itself, uh, an official of the Trump organization, was involved in the payment of that $130,000. So, again, this comes right back to Donald Trump. And here's the final point I want to make on that. Have you noticed there's a real difference here in the way Donald Trump is treating, is t- it, how Donald Trump is handling the Stormy Daniels scandal and all those other women who have accused him of sexual assault or sexual harassment. Have you noticed Donald Trump has not tweeted about Stormy Daniels. He has not attacked her. He's not insulted her. He has not defamed her. He has, reporters have asked him, he has refused, he's just ducked any comment about Stormy, making any personal comment about Stormy Daniels at all. Now, 
I happen to think that's smart on his part, but I do wonder why. Why is it, has he flipped his whole style about how he treats and responds to women who accuse him of doing wrong? Why is it so totally different with Stormy Daniels? Makes me wonder. Can't imagine why, though. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know. Uh, and I got to tell you, the thing that really bugs me, it amuses me, but bugs me, is Republican denial. Remember Al Gore? He's the first one, at least I heard to say, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Man, the Republicans are so full of denial when it comes to Pennsylvania's 18. It is pathetic. Donald, Paul Ryan yesterday said, well, it was no big surprise. The hell, it wasn't a big surprise. Republicans thought they were going to win this district, and they should have won this district. And we've told you all the reasons why. It's a beat red district. Democrats haven't even fielded a candidate in that district. That's how much they gave up on it for the last two elections. Donald Trump has over a 50 percent approval rating in that district. He carried the district by 20 points. They spent $10 million. They sent in Mike Pence, Donald Trump twice, Donnie Jr., Kellyanne Conway, their secret weapon, right, to beat Connor Lamb. And they say, well, we just got stuck with a lackluster candidate. Well, Rick Saccone was, I mean, Connor Lamb's certainly a better candidate than Rick Saccone. But this was not a beauty contest. This was a basic difference of opinion on fundamental values and and the core Democratic Party message. And that's what Connor Lamb carried, and he won. Uh, and they can try their recount. It's not going to. It's not going to make any difference. And this is again. This was the test, the first test for the Republicans in 2018. They're, this is where they're rolling out their winning message, a threefold message. They said this is this is how we're going to win in 2018 across the board. Three things, okay? Demonize Nancy Pelosi. Praise the tax cuts. And um, also praise uh, the Trump uh, economy uh, and and praise Donald Trump as the best president ever. All three of those things bombed in Pennsylvania. I mean, with the Republicans in charge of the House and the Senate and the White House for three for already over a year and delivering nothing. People aren't really that worried about who the minority leader of the House is, frankly. Uh, The tax cuts. They dropped the tax cuts like a hot potato because people didn't believe it. They, they know that the little piddly increase they might get in a tax break this year isn't going to last long. Meanwhile, the wealthiest Americans and the big corporations will live fat as hogs forever. And for Donald Trump, again, they may like him still, but it doesn't mean they're going to vote for him. It doesn't mean they trust him. In, in, in this district, it was the fourth time that Donald Trump they rolled out the big dog in New Jersey. He lost. They rolled out the big dog in Virginia. Donald Trump himself, they lost. They rolled the big dog out in Alabama for Roy Moore. He lost. Rolled out the big dog for Rick Saccone in Pennsylvania, and he lost. Donald Trump is the poison pill for Republicans in 2018. So, you know, I just wish, let me tell you, I was a candidate once, okay? I lost. And, you know, I learned a lot. Here's the thing that you do when you lose. <clears throat> you don't spin it. You just say, I lost. You just accept the fact, congratulate the other person, admit that you didn't get as much as many votes as he or she did, and move on. 
But trying to spin it the way they are now, they just look like fools. And they can't accept reality. And uh, they better accept it because it's a wake-up call to the Republicans. The, you know, we may not have the blue wave yet, but maybe you can feel the blue wave coming. It's coming. Yeah, it's indeed. Coming. Uh, well, we found out yesterday that the Department of Defense has been spending a lot of money at the Trump Hotel, and including Mar-a-Lago. Mm, corruption inside the Trump White House. And what's the latest on impeachment? We find out next from the president for Free Speech for People, John Bonifaz here on The Bill Press Show. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. Hey, here we go, folks, on a Friday, March 16, uh, The Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and... um, Good to have you with us today. We are getting close, close to publication date for my new book. I've been telling you about it. From the Left, Life in the Crossfire. Official publication date is Tuesday, uh, March 20. But, of course, you don't have to wait that long to get your signed copy. You can order it now from our website, BillPressShow.com, at a special 40% discount. Gets the price down to sixteen seventy nine. Hell, at that price, you can buy five or six of them. Uh, at any rate, um, I've been signing books like mad, uh, shipping them out. So if you haven't already done so, order your copy, Bill Press from the Left, Life in the Crossfire. Lots of good stuff about a lot of the fun that I've had from way back in the days working for Jerry Brown in California to coming back here to Washington for Crossfire. And uh, most recently, helping get the Bernie Sanders campaign for president launched from our living room just about a block from here. I tell you all about it. Bernie's got a good blurb on the book as well as Jerry Brown and uh, Nancy Pelosi, Rosa Lalara, Max, Maxine Waters, and a lot of other friends. Get your copy at uh, BillPressShow.com. Uh, and we've been at it, stirring things up already for a little over a half an hour. Uh, and um, you've been sounding out. Peter. Yes, indeed. We are on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. A uh, couple of comments about uh, Stormy Daniels. KG says, don't forget. He has, she has pictures. She has pictures. We'll see. Maybe she does. Maybe she doesn't. You know she does. Also, on uh, the trade deficit with Canada, Phil says we do, in fact, have a trade deficit with Canada for things like moose meat, maple syrup, and snow. No, oh. I, don't, oh. no I don't think that's true. I don't think that's <laughs> moose meat, true. probably. Yeah. Uh, I on, doubt that we export much moose meat to Canada. I don't think so. I've never had moose meat, but. God, Peter, you've eaten everything. I know. A lot of things. I've never had any moose meat. Uh, On the bridge collapse in Florida, by the way, Joey Olivia reminds us, says Florida is a right-to-work state, no unions, no skilled workers, and it's not the only bridge to fall for this company. So, look, we're in this age where we're looking more and more at unionization, and that's not the case uh, down in Florida. Very good point. Do you have a comment on any topic? Yeah, I love the fact that Rick Scott raced down there, right? Oh, yeah. He's going to get on top of it, just like he got on top of – the gun safety last week. Yeah, right. right. If you have a comment on any topic at any time, find us on Twitter at BP Show. Right. So um, I mentioned a couple of times, I hate to keep mentioning this maybe, but, but I did go to the Gridiron Dinner this year. Uh, and at the Gridiron Dinner, uh, somebody made the comment, and the press, Donald Trump was there. Uh, it was the first time. He didn't go last year. He did come this year. He didn't go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And somebody made the comment as a joke, which really um, was true, that what was significant, historic about that 
night was not that Donald Trump was at the Gridiron Dinner, but this was the first time since he'd been president that he had eaten outside of the White House anywhere other than in a property that he owned. Or McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> well, he orders in McDonald's. Yeah, 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 doesn't fair, go fair. there. Uh, but it does raise the question about Donald Trump making money, cashing in as president from his properties. Uh, John Boniface is the head of president, co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, who's been following these uh, conflicts and emoluments and even suggesting impeachment is the answer. Hey, John, good to see you. Bill, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming in. It is, I mean, I, you do have the impression that Donald Trump sees this presidency as another money-making opportunity. Absolutely. He's using the Oval Office as a profit-making enterprise at the public expense. And that's precisely why Free Speech for People joined with Roots Action. Together we launched ImpeachDonaldTrumpNow.org on the day of the inauguration because he refused <laughs> to divest. He didn't wait around. We huh? did not because he refused to divest from his business interests before taking the oath of office. He was warned by constitutional scholars across the country that in order to comply with the foreign and domestic emoluments clauses of the Constitution, he would need to do so. And he decided he was going to defy the rule of law, defy the Constitution, go ahead and treat the Oval Office as this profit-making enterprise. And since then, of course, we've seen an expanded uh, set of abuses of power by this president that justifies even further an impeachment investigation. But that was ground number one. Well, so first of all, just people want to plug into this, find out more about it, become part of it, add their names to any petition or kind of whatever. How they do so? What's they can go to impeachdonaldtrumpnow.org. Okay. uh, And they can also, I brought by uh, today for those viewing this, our briefing paper, the legal case for a congressional investigation on whether to impeach uh, Donald Trump. And we outline uh, very comprehensively uh, and launched this uh, in December of last year. Uh, eight grounds, eight different grounds for an impeachment investigation uh, backed by constitutional scholars, including those uh, uh, on our team. And we, you know, look, we look at this as a constitutional crisis already. I know people look at Robert Mueller does something to impede that investigation as a constitutional crisis at that point. We see this crisis already happening as a result of this president's continued defiance of the Constitution and the rule of law. Does the Emoluments Clause, it doesn't seem like anybody cares about the Emoluments Clause. I mean, does it have the weight of law? We talked about it so much after he was first, uh, after he first took office. I remember we were told by people, Peter, I think you're right, is that on day one, he will be in violation of the law because of his one property, at least, the hotel and and down on uh, Pennsylvania. Well, 111 business interests all over the world. He has foreign government payments coming uh, to him through the Trump organization. So he's in violation of both the foreign emoluments clause and the domestic emoluments clause, which certainly exhibit A for that is the Trump International Hotel and the way he's getting a federal benefit by having that lease uh, from the federal government to operate uh, that that business there. So why hasn't anything been done about it? Is this the Department of Justice would have to bring a case? Well, you know, I think both the Department of Justice would have to investigate this, and, and this is an important point, that this is not part of Robert Mueller's mandate uh, to investigate this particular matter. Oh, yeah, right. This is, this is not on his mandate. No, no. And, and second of all, Congress has a responsibility uh, to hold the president accountable when he's engaged in an impeachable offense, and that's the process uh, through which we think there needs to be 
uh, movement now, uh, and it should have happened long ago. And we're glad to see 66 members of Congress on record calling for impeachment proceedings with the last vote in January of this year. But we think members of Congress need to step up further to demand this today. Well, on the hotel, uh, you don't have to go as high as the attorney general. I mean, the General Services Administration yes. has jurisdiction over federal properties, right? I mean, they're the ones who who make sure a lease is in valid form or not. Yes, or, but, but every, every ethics uh, official, including Norm Eisen, former chief counsel to President Obama, and uh, uh, Richard Painter, former chief uh, ethics counsel uh, to President George W. Bush, have said the GSA is completely, uh, you know, it, not following its duty here. It's, it's essentially given a green light for that lease when it's clearly in violation of the Emoluments Clause. So um, I remember before he was sworn in, the Wall Street Journal uh, editorialized yes. to President-elect Trump, sell your assets. Yes. Divest of all your assets. Yes. Yeah. And in the modern era, that's what president-elects do if they have any uh, businesses. President I, Jimmy Carter famously sold his peanut farm uh, prior to taking office. But this president came in. And what did he do? Did he do it? On January 11th, 2017, before he took office, he held a infamous press conference at Trump Tower with his uh, bankruptcy uh, attorney who then came forward with all these manila folders uh, of documents he was to be signing, showing that he was turning over not ownership control, but management control of his company to his two eldest sons. The problem there is that the test is not whether he's managing the company day to day. The question is whether he maintains ownership control, and he does. He's receiving illegal payments from foreign governments and from domestic uh, governments here in the United States, state governments and the federal government in violation of those clauses. So he has willfully violated those emoluments clauses. So are his holdings in a blind trust? Well, they're in what they would like to say <laughs> is a blind trust. But the fact is, is that these are, uh, again, uh, money's coming to him that either he will see now or see later, but the ownership control may, is, it remains. And the financial benefits, which are illegal, are flowing to him. So it's either... It's neither blind nor trust. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I did see this week, CNN reported that um, the the Department of Defense uh, had spent in the last eight months $138,000 yes. uh, at Trump properties. Yes. Uh, a lot of it at Mar-a-Lago. Yes. For dinners, events, and right. things like that. Um, is this sort of the rule now um, among federal agencies that if you're scheduling an event, you're having a farewell party or dinner or reception or or even among lobbyists or who represent American companies or foreign countries that that um, that if the smart thing to do is to schedule it in a Trump property? I, I, I guess so. I mean, you know, the fact is, Bill, we've been around since the Citizens United. Peter, we better think about this for next uh, this year's Christmas party. Yeah, yes, right. exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, we're not getting any points from Donald Trump <laughs> for going at the, to the Palm. <laughs> right? I mean, the prices yeah. are the prices are higher wherever you uh, go to his property. He's I was going to say, I don't know oh. if we can afford to have the Christmas party at a Trump property. <laughs> well, that's true too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But but you know, we we've been around for eight years now, Bill. We got started on the Citizens United. Uh, ruling into seeking to overturn that. We've been focused on 
dealing with big money and politics and taking it on. But this level of corruption in this White House is unprecedented. And that is why uh, we added uh, to our mandate uh, this impeachment campaign. We saw it as consistent with what we had been engaged in doing before. But what we've seen, not just with that Department of Defense example, but with so many other examples, is this president abusing his power and the public trust and treating, again, the Oval Office like a a profit-making enterprise. Uh, This is corruption at the highest level. Well, it doesn't—he certainly doesn't seem to be alone uh, in that regard. Absolutely not. It sort of like trickles down. I'm thinking about in the last week, we've seen several examples. Uh, Ben Carson— Yes. $131,000 dining set. Yes. For yes. his office, which originally they said he knew nothing about. Yes. And now we see the emails where he and his wife actually picked out the yes. furniture. Yes. Um, so There's a culture there that he's created. Yes. Scott Pruitt. Yes. With, uh, who had to back down from flying first class or chartering all these planes. Yes. Ryan Zinke, the interior secretary, same thing with chartering all these private planes. Yes. Uh, Shulkin, who is an Obama leftover. Uh, at at Veterans Fair, taking his wife on this boondoggle trip yes. uh, to to Europe. Um, what was it yesterday? Steve Mnuchin, a million Mnuchin, dollars for, for his Pruitt. fight. I mean, they're all what? <laughs> yes, <laughs> the plutocracy here. Yeah, it is. It's outrageous, and there is a culture of corruption that goes throughout uh, this administration. But this president has direct, obviously, oversight and control over many executive branch. Uh, policies and decisions that are now going to be seen in conflict with his own business interests. And that's the biggest uh, concern here. As much as it's a concern that people are engaged in buying expensive furniture and wasting taxpayer money, the, the biggest concern here is that this president does not have an allegiance necessarily to the public interest, but rather to his own bottom line profit making. What about um, this question, which we keep coming back to, um, and I want to come back to impeachment. I'm not ignoring that, yeah. that, that your campaign there. But you mentioned you got started with Citizens United. Right. I mean, it's just gotten worse, not better, since Citizens, since Citizens United. And there doesn't seem to be any real effort to do anything about money in politics. Well, where, where it really is I happening— mean, Obama didn't do much, yeah. and Trump had done less. I think, I think at the federal level there are— challenges, certainly in in, time, in terms of these incumbents who don't want to take on a system that benefits them. But the fact is, is that at the grassroots level, there's been enormous movement. There are already 19 states calling for a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. We've been very involved in helping to lead that campaign. 750-plus cities and towns all across the country passing similar resolutions calling for that. And we've seen also efforts at the state level to take on, and local level to take on super PACs, to take on foreign corporate money. Uh, We were part of a campaign uh, that we helped launch in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, that just last October ended with a victory there in the city council passing a model law for the first time in the country, which bans super PACs in their local elections and bans foreign corporate money. And There are super PACs even involved in local elections? There are now, unfortunately. And I think what this does is it creates the opportunity for other communities now to follow St. Petersburg's example, and we're looking at other communities to do this, to have this model law uh, taken up. So it may not be happening in Congress uh, today, 
uh, in terms of any legislation about to pass, but it is happening at the state and local level because of grassroots energy and support. I think that's so interesting, right? Because that seems to be the way that a lot of these things are being tackled because you can't count on the federal government to oversee this stuff anymore because it's just become so blindly supportive of the president just because he happens to be a part of of their party. From from climate change to gun safety to money and politics um, and and on so many other areas, any initiative today is really happening at the state or local level. I think that's where the energy is, absolutely. Right, and we've seen that in many states moving ahead, red states as well as as blue states. Someone, uh, one of our guests was telling us about Maybe you're familiar with this. That intrigued me in Seattle, where they actually give people a voucher. Yes, yes, it's a form of public funding of elections, uh, and we fully support it. Free speech of people. We're going to be involved in helping and defend it uh, in court with an amicus brief soon, where there's a challenge to it. But the fact is, is that uh, it is consistent with. Supreme Court president. So the way it works is, I'm a voter, right? Yes. I get a twenty-five dollar voucher. I can spend. You then every uh, every, support every any voter candidate. gets this. So every it's, voter, it's right? This form of public funding, where then the voucher is distributed by the voters to the candidates they support, and that's how the candidates run for office. That's how they fund their campaigns. And are they allowed to raise money on top of that? Or well, I they're guess... allowed to raise qualifying contributions, um, but it's really uh, designed to. Ensure that you're accountable to the voters, not to the moneyed interests. And, you know, whether it's that system or a system like we have in Arizona or uh, Maine uh, or Connecticut where you have public funding of elections, it's a a very critical uh, way to go to break the stranglehold of moneyed interests control over our government. Is there any serious movement toward a constitutional amendment? Well, again, 19 states calling for it, 750 cities and towns. It has to originate in the Congress. It has to originate in the Congress. We did see a vote in September 2014 at the United States Senate, uh, 54 U.S. senators going on record. Uh, I think there will be another push, uh, you know, down the road in the Senate for that kind of vote again uh, and in the House. We, we, there are hundreds of, uh, of members of Congress in support uh, of a constitutional amendment gone on record. Uh, But the fact is here that what has to propel this is people at the grassroots level calling for it, uh, demanding this 28th Amendment, demanding that we reclaim our democracy and end this dominance of big money politics, big money over our elections. What impact do you think that the uh, Bernie Sanders campaign had on uh, the idea that you have to have super PACs in order to win? I, I think it had a huge impact to educate people. Uh, that this is a serious threat to our democracy, uh, that whether it's super PACs or direct uh, corporate expenditures being made or big money coming from billionaires to drown out the voices of ordinary citizens, it educated uh, people that this is a, a core question for our democracy. Is it we the people or is it we the corporations and big moneyed interests? But it certainly showed that at least one candidate could go out and raise, what, $237 million, I believe is what he it, raised. It showed that. With to be, no PAC money. Yes, it did. To be fair, I think it's an exception to the rule. In other words, I think he had the opportunity as being a United States senator uh, with the platform of running in the presidential campaign mm-hmm. uh, to get that kind of exposure but it would be far more difficult for candidates at the local or state or even, frankly, running for Congress to get that same level of exposure and be able to raise there, that grassroots support. There was, also, there was also something about his personality. It just clicked, right? It, it did. I, it did. 
And, you and, could have another United States senator that's right. running for president. I don't mean to put any of them down, yeah, but I yeah. mean if it were an Elizabeth Warren even, or even if Hillary maybe had tried that. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, with Bernie, it was magic. It did click. It worked. and It did. It did. Phenomenal. It did. But yeah. uh, but again, I think you know the but, answer ultimately isn't for candidates to think they can run raising solely grassroots support as much as that would be uh, great if that could happen. But it's to have public funding elections. It's to have limits on how much people can contribute and can spend in, in elections to have an end to super PACs. All of these go together to create a different kind of system uh, for our politics. Okay. So your latest report, which you brought a copy of, the, uh, the uh, from the uh, Free Speech People, right? Pe- Free Speech, Free for, Speech people. for People. Yes. Right. Um, the legal case for a congressional investigation on whether to impeach President Donald J. Trump. Wouldn't you have to admit right up front that you're just whistling Dixie as long as Republicans are in control of Congress? There's, there, there are not going to be any impeachment hearings in this Congress. You know, I, we're, we're of the view uh, that anything can happen, Bill. <laughs> Keep hope respect, alive. <laughs> well, with respect to this president and, and the lines he continues to cross— uh, you know, it may not be a question of whether the Democrats control or the Republicans control uh, the House. This is a nonpartisan uh, campaign, and we look at this fully through the lens of the Constitution. What does the Constitution require? Every single member of Congress has taken the same oath the president uh, has taken to uh, defend the Constitution, and yet they, too, if they're not standing up uh, and calling for this president to be held accountable for his defiance of the rule of law, they too are violating that oath. So we think the pressure needs to stay on. And and frankly— And the way to make it happen is for people to keep pressure on members of Congress? Keep pressure on members of Congress, but urge uh, that they go to their own government, uh, local governments, pass resolutions. We have a whole resources page at impeachdonaldtrumpnow.org where people can download our model resolution and bring it before their local city council— uh, their local county authority or even the state government to push this question and get people engaged in calling for the president's accountability. If Donald Trump fires Robert Mueller because Mueller has now subpoenaed his uh, personal financial records yes. uh, with his any dealings with pr- prior dealings with Russia, if that if if M- Trump follows through that that in what he kind of warned that that would be crossing yes. the red line. And fires Robert Mueller, would that trigger, do you believe, impeachment hearings? I think it would be a real tipping point. I mean, we've seen already many Republicans as well as Democrats on the record saying that that would be a serious violation, breach of of the oath. And frankly, uh, you know, we've seen polling now. 65% of the public says that if Mueller finds wrongdoing, uh, that the president should face impeachment proceedings. So if he's going to try to fire Robert Mueller or undermine that investigation by firing Rod Rosenstein, trying to essentially stop Mueller from continuing, that is going to be seen as impeding that investigation. It's a question at what point uh, some of the Republicans actually are willing to break, um, not just criticize, but break. Yes. Yes. We all saw this morning that Jeff Flake, senator from Arizona, uh, is now saying that he's not sure, I'm not sure my party deserves to lead. Yes. And this is a man who talks the talk, frankly, but doesn't walk the walk. You know, he, he still turns around and votes for basically whatever Donald Trump wants. And so um, maybe too many like that. John Boniface, you're out there, man, Bill, leading the charge. You. All right. Thank it, you the, very much. the website again is impeachment, impeachdonaldtrumpnow.org, impeachdonaldtrumpnow.org, right? Impeachdonaldtrumpnow.org, and they can get this uh, white paper 
freespeechforpeople.org. All right, freespeechforpeople.org. Meanwhile, do you realize March 23rd is another deadline looming for keeping the government running again or running out of money and shutting it down? What's happening with that? And exactly what is in uh, the uh, big tax bill passed in December? For you, as a good working-class American family, Andy Friedman joins us from Washington Update next here on The Bill Press Show. Stay tuned. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to The Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. The latest Robert Mueller subpoenas documents related to Donald Trump's business dealings with Russia before he became president. Does this cross Donald Trump's red line? What do you say, everybody, on a Friday, Friday, March 16th? It's good to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we are booming out to you uh, coast to coast from our studio right here on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., just down the street from the United States Capitol building in the shadow of the Capitol Dome, as we like to say, with the news of the day joining you online on the radio and on television, uh, again, coast to coast. Thanks for being with us. We've got a lot and lot to cover today. Uh, I want to delve this uh, first half hour of our second hour together today into um, some of the the big business facing this Congress, I sort of lost track of the fact that we're up against another deadline next week, March 23rd, for keeping the government running. Uh, on the financial front, you can't get a better source in Washington than Washington Update, uh, put out by uh, Andrew Friedman, who joins us in studio. Andrew, nice to see you. Nice to see you, Bill. Thanks for coming in this morning. Thanks for having me. Here we go. Uh, we've, we've, we've seen this movie play out before, yeah. haven't we? We call it the gift that keeps on giving, right? There's always <laughs> always a deadline, always needing to fund the government, and here we are again. And you know they're going to do it well in advance. It will never be at the last minute. Absolutely not. No, 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 never. Right. So. We'll get into that, and plus want to take a good look at this tax cut with Andy Friedman as well. And get your comments. Uh, I want to hear from you always. On Twitter, we always tell you, Donald Trump doesn't own Twitter. We own Twitter. Use it. <laughs> Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. We'll dive right in, but first. This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, so you hear a lot of people say that if so-and-so gets elected, they're going to leave the country, right? We heard a lot of people say that about Donald Trump. Well, one celebrity who is making good on that is actor Matt Damon. According to Page Six, he has purchased property in Sydney, Australia. And he says he is moving his family to Australia and that he is leaving America specifically because of Donald Trump. Why do you wait so long? But yeah, it's been a, but it's also, been a, little, a little time now. I'll bet you he didn't give up his 
I bet he still has a place in, in L.A. I would I would bet money on it. He says it's not going to impact his acting. He's going to be able to travel for acting work and stuff like that. But for now, he's taking his entire family out of America and moving them to Australia. That's a long flight for a screen call. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, sad news yesterday, although we knew this was coming. We've talked about how Toys R Us was closing more and more stores. Well, they yeah. made it official. They are closing all of their stores. Uh, You can point to a lot of reasons why that might be happening, specifically Amazon. You know, you could get toys on Amazon delivered the next day, so it's kind of hard to take your kids out shopping for toys at Toys R Us when you could just do it without leaving the house. But 31,000 employees all around the country are out of a job, no severance, no real uh, lead time on this. It's just sort of they're closing up shop. 200 locations is what's left, uh, almost 200 locations, 182 stores, and they're closing. Uh, and these em- employers or employees have really nowhere to go, so it's, so, it's a real bummer. It, this is like one of those businesses you just thought would always be there, right? Yeah, it's amazing. It's the paradigm shift of uh, online uh, ordering that has changed so much. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Even totally. For, I mean, I remember the big Toys R Us in Times Square in Absolutely. New York. It was a, like a whole carnival, you right. know. And, yeah, incredible. By the way, one other story on that same front. Yesterday, iHeartMedia, formerly Clear Channel mm. uh, Radio, mm-hmm. filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Ooh. They are the largest U.S. radio station owner in America. Whoa. Turns out they have over $20 billion in debt. They wow. have 858 radio stations, so they are restructuring how they are doing business. Not good for corporate media. Uh, so... We'll see what that means in the coming weeks and months. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of friends in we do indeed uh, in that business and uh, some former affiliates in in that business. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. sheds a little light on maybe what happened. Yeah, <laughs> sure does. Is the bill? Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. So what do you say on a Friday, March 16? Uh, how about it? Good to see you today. Thank you for joining us here at the Bill Press Show. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, where we'll bring you the news of the day and give you a chance to comment on what it all means to you. Send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. As we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, where you can also pick up our podcast anytime during the day. Uh, We're with you on the great WCPT, the big progressive voice of Chicago uh, throughout the greater Chicago area and nationwide, joining you on Free Speech TV. In studio with us, Andrew Friedman is the... uh, Founder, creator, publisher, I don't know, major domo of Washington <laughs> Update, uh, taking a look particularly at the financial side of uh, doings here in Washington, D.C. Andy, nice to see you. Thanks nice for coming in. Thanks. So I, uh, just starting with a little um, things that are in the news these days. You mm-hmm. know, I've seen you on television a lot. You look good on TV. You, well, thank you. You look handsome on TV. Uh, maybe you could get a job in the Trump administration. No, I might not be <laughs> handsome enough. I don't have hair. I think you need to have hair. You know, Gary Cohn didn't have hair, but he's gone, so I don't know. No but, facial hair, though. We know Donald Trump isn't has it funny that, uh, that Donald Trump said... To, to Larry Kudlow. Larry, I saw you on yes, TV. Exactly. You're, you're handsome. Yes. You want to be my economic exactly. advisor? Exactly. So what? I've known Larry. You probably have I a long have, time, yes. too. What do you think, uh, Larry, in that position? 
Well, I think you need somebody in that position who's going to be, you know, kind of challenge Trump, be a little more looking at the Main Street and Wall Street, kind of keep him on on the reservation, if you will. Uh, I think Cohn did that. I don't know that that Kudlow's the guy for that. I'm a little disturbed that Kudlow, who is so against tariffs, mm-hmm. and as are most people, you, you, you need free flow of goods around the world. Uh, all of a sudden says, well, maybe these tariffs aren't so good, aren't so bad. So that worries me that maybe he won't push a view that uh, that a lot of people want to be pushed there. He seemed to, uh, he, Larry, yeah. seemed to soften on that, he did. his opposition, when apparently, I guess, Trump said, well, we'll carve out an exception yeah. for Canada, and then we'll carve out an exception for Mexico, and then maybe we'll carve out an exception, uh, keep carving exceptions right. until there's nothing left but China, right. which probably... Larry would like, yeah, I guess so. But 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 it's but just still, it's, yeah. You know, a tariff is a tariff, and if and once you start down that road, you're making. I think you're making a mistake. Uh, and I think Cudlow would, two weeks ago would have said you're making a mistake. Maybe by now he thinks differently. Uh, maybe who knows? Right. Yeah. Um, if they go through against China, what could we see as a result of tariffs with China? Is Boeing particularly the one that would? Feel it? Yeah, I mean, we went through Boeing. Yes, I mean, let's just kind of look at what happens with tariffs. If we impose a tariff, which is a tax on imported goods, typically our trading partners will impose tariffs on exported goods. So that hurts our exports. But more importantly, it raises prices because all of a sudden, if you don't have foreign competition or a foreign competition comes at the cost of a tax, prices go up. I mean, the example I like to use is if there's a tariff on television sets coming in from Asia. Well, prices of TVs just went up 10% if that's the tariff. Right. So it's it's inflationary. Uh, it costs consumers money. Uh, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Why would Trump do it? Um, I think Trump has an American first agenda. He thinks he's protecting the American worker and the American business. And he wants to be uh, vociferous on that. He wants to show he really cares about that. Uh, that's kind of we're beyond that now. I mean, it's a global economy. The The, the economy doesn't stop at the borders anymore. But it's a throwback to the time when businesses wanted to be protected here. Mm-hmm. It is um, uh, this this phrase that we hear that he throws around a lot, and particularly with Gary Coney used at the end. Well, he's a globalist. Yeah, right. Globalist. Yeah, heaven forbid. But aren't we all today? I mean, in effect, don't you have to be a globalist? I mean, today? If you're going to survive economically, yes, you have to be a globalist. As, as I say, the world is so interconnected now. I mean, this is not this is not new stuff. I'm talking about the world is so interconnected that once you yeah. start putting up barriers, everything becomes more expensive mm-hmm. for for no reason. It's all artificial. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a union member. I'm a proud union member. I'm a big supporter of unions, but I still think I mean, you have to operate on the on the, with in this global economy today and compete in this global economy, that's right which i believe we can yes right? i, I would hope so and i think there. so yes now but, let's be honest though you know a lot of the democrats support trump on this yeah yes uh, and it's so it's not this is not just him doing this the, but, the democrats who feel yeah. a little maybe beholden to the unions mm-hmm. they're supporting him mm-hmm. yeah not all but not all right. not all yeah, yeah. um back to larry for just a second it, uh, it's interesting the uh the New York Times this morning says a TV commentator becomes a presidential advisor. Let's go to the videotape. <laughs> now, if they did this for any of us, it would be. But of when you go back, Larry's been Larry's been wrong a lot. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I don't know if you saw the article in the uh, Washington Post, but it said something to the effect of that no no economist has been wrong more than Larry Kudlow. It's uh, interesting. But we'll see how he does in, exactly. in this job. But I think uh, he he is excited to have this no job. This question. is something like he has always, I think, no kind question. of wanted to yeah. be in prime. This is 
prime time. Right. right for That's them. absolutely right. And he is. He does have ties, you know, to the business community. And so we have to hope that he'll continue to push those views. Right. Um, also in news this week, the, the um, Senate was it just yesterday or the day before passed this new banking right. bill that basically rolls back uh, any um, new regulations or limits that were put on Wall Street in the wake of the 2008 recession. Uh, what do you think of the bill? Have you had a chance to look Yeah, at I have. Um, a I, lot of Democratic support for this yeah, bill. Yeah. I mean, let's look at really what the bill does. The aim of the bill is to get medium-sized banks out from under a lot of the restrictions in Dodd-Frank. So these are banks that have assets between $50 billion and $250 billion. They had been subject to Dodd-Frank. Now the goal is to pull them out a bit. They're not systemically important. They're not too big to fail banks. And the feeling is you need these smaller banks as a counterweight to some of the larger banks. Couldn't you take care of the smaller banks without giving the big banks a break? Well, that's that's what they started doing. Um, But there seems to be, as they're looking closer to the bill, that there's authority given primarily to the Treasury Department to cut back on some of the requirements of larger banks as well. And I think that's where it becomes more controversial. Uh, and, of course, the House would like to do more in that regard. They don't yeah, think it goes right. far enough. Yeah. Um, I think a bill that really started the way that one did to try to carve out medium-sized banks might not be a bad idea. Uh, they're going to have to kind of try to wall that off, though, from dealing with the larger banks as well. Well, in my, in my limited experience with bankers and sometimes speaking to banking associations, the smaller banks always go at great pains to distinguish themselves absolutely. from Wall Street. That's you absolutely know, right. We're the community banks. We're the people that people come to when they need a home mortgage, right? And we're in your little, town. We're on your main yeah, street. A small business right. loan or something like that. Don't identify us right. with right. Goldman Sachs or right. whatever. And I think they're right. Yeah, I think right? they are. Now, we're kind of in the middle. The, the, a lot of the community banks are under $50 million, so we're right in the middle between the community banks here and the big banks. So this would kind of extend the concept of community banks a little more. So this is passed. The Senate now goes to the House. Right. Is that right? right? That's right. And in the Senate, it became a real Democratic civil war almost yes, between Elizabeth Warren and Chuck Schumer, yes. particularly the two leaders of the two factions. Yeah, what was interesting to me is uh, Barney Frank said this does not cut back substantially on Dodd Frank. Somebody must have gotten to him to, mm. to, to not, I assume he believes it, but right. but it was important that he said that. So he supported the. So he said, "I support this," which is was a little surprising to many people, and I think took the wind out of the sails a lot of of Elizabeth Warren's group. No, certainly Barney's, you know, right. his opinion would carry a lot of weight sure. uh, in this in this area. Okay, so what about this March 23rd deadline? Now, what, what, are, I can't believe it. We're going to go through this charade again? You know, I don't think we will this time, Bill, because this time there's an agreement on government spending for the next two years that was reached earlier this year between the Republicans and the That's Democrats. That's the 1.23? Well, it would, it would raise, it would increase spending by about $500 billion, uh, okay. um, which yeah. is the largest spending increase we have seen since the uh, Recovery Act after the 2008 meltdown, which, by the way, all the Republicans voted against. But we can come back to why this is different. Uh, and I think they would say it is different. Um, but that agreement's been reached. That's usually the, the tough point. You know, the reason we come to shutdowns is because the Republicans want to spend on defense. Democrats yeah. don't or they want to spend on other programs. They've reached agreement now. So now they're really arguing more about policy riders and, and smaller What points. else might be in it? Then, exactly. Huh? But didn't we just the last time... Uh, February 9. I'm right. just looking right. 
we increased spending by three hundred billion. Yeah. So now we're increasing by another five hundred billion. Well, yeah, essentially that's right. I mean, there's there's additional. Yes, yeah, so the point is there's a lot of additional spending. Um, now to tell you, I mean, just kind of look. Why did that come about? When, yeah. When you have a Republican Congress and a Republican president, the Republicans seem to say the most important thing is to increase defense spending. The, the defense. Uh, the country's defenses have been uh, hurt by major cuts, by sequestration that capped how much they could get. And we need to, to do away with that and raise spending to, uh, by a tremendous amount. Democrats, instead of fighting that, said, OK, if you want to do we'll that, we'd that like our commensurate increase. Yeah, yeah. By the time they had uh, shaken hands, you know, spending was up $500 billion. So that's how we got here. And what it does is it really will. They'll, they'll, they'll get through this March 23rd deadline. And it takes off the table any issues on government shutdowns, reaching the debt limit uh, well past the election, which is really what everybody wants. It still raises, leaves some issues uh, unresolved. Um, will there likely be money in here for the wall? That's the question. Uh, my guess is there will be some money for the wall. I think there's there was none have to the be. last time, That's even correct. though the president said it had to be there. Yeah, I know. Uh, this time, I do think there will be some. It won't be a lot, and it'll be co- it'll be compensated for hopefully by other measures that are not so draconian about immigration. We'll have to see. And uh, will there be any DACA resolution? I don't think so. My guess is not. So- They'll punt again on that. I think I mean, they will. I think that, uh, the, you know, that you, you hear, well, we could have a short-term deal on DACA, but my guess is that ultimately that we'll get to the deadline and it won't be in there. And whatever happened to um, this burning concern about the deficit? Whatever happened to that? Bill? <laughs> Boy, is that Seriously, the right question? I mean, nobody even asked the question. You anymore. know, I mean, right. let's just kind of set the stage here. We have a, a debt that is increasing just systemically because of the aging of the baby boomers. Social Security and Medicare costs are going up every year, uh, and we're not doing anything to try to reform those programs. Uh, and then you add to that a tax cut that nominally is $1.5 trillion. Now, people say some of that is made up by growth in the economy, but a lot of the economists say, okay, maybe it's a trillion-dollar tax cut. Now you add another $500 billion in spending in this latest deal, and you're looking at an exploding deficit, a deficit of a trillion dollars a year going forward. And you're looking at the debt buildup uh, being, you Which know, starting at twenty know. trillion and going yeah. up from there. You know, I, you know, I wonder if uh, that the Trump presidency doesn't maybe follow the arc of the George W. Bush presidency. That you have a a nice economic jolt at the beginning with a big tax cut, but then debt builds up and builds up and builds up till it's not sustainable. Has to be brought back down. Throws us into an economic downturn. So I think you know they're 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 being kind of. Uh, foolish to not worry about this down the road. So it is, I mean, the, the deficit and the debt are a potential, at least, drag on the economy. Absolutely. Now, not not quite yet. I mean, to me, here's how the drag comes about. The I mean, dra- a certain amount of debt, I guess, is... Sure. Right? It's like buying a house with a mortgage. Sure, sure. You want some. You want yeah. about 3% maybe of GDP. We're, we're much higher than that. Um, but the... Uh, the, um, I guess I lost my train of thought. Oh, here's what here's my concern. When you have this much debt outstanding, you're trying to sell a trillion dollars of new debt every year. At some point, you can't do that at low interest rates. People want, they're saying that you're flooding the market with supply. That means interest rates have to go up so the demand meets that. And then we have a problem because with interest mm-hmm. rates rising, not only does that make debt service worse, but it means borrowing costs go up for businesses. And then they're in trouble. Does it matter who owns our debt? Um, it would be nice if the debt was owned more by our, our, either by our government or by our citizens, but we're going in the opposite direction. You know, the Fed bought a lot of debt. 
Mm-hmm. Now the Fed is is letting debt come off its balance sheet because they're they're moving away from quantitative easing, which was an idea to keep interest rates low. Um, so it, in fact, what's happening is uh, where supply is going up and demand from our own Fed is going down, which means it has to be filled elsewhere. So I mean, I've heard some. Uh, Politicians raised the issue of China's buying more and more yep. of our debt. Mm-hmm. You know, they were basically owned by the Chinese or the Japanese. I don't know who else is buying it. Well, China and Japan are the two biggest. China and Japan. Yeah. And yes, you know, it, it thwarts our Saudi international Arabia. relations. Some. Um, but, but whatever, whoever owns it, your your point is correct, which is all of a sudden there's uh, something that has to be taken account mm-hmm. into, in any diplomatic relations. And, mm-hmm. You know, that you that you want to make sure that, that they're keeping you buying your debt because you're going to be selling more and more, and that can undercut some of what you're trying to accomplish diplomatically. So I want to talk to you about the uh, the tax cut, uh, recent tax cut bill, um, which you just alluded to. Before we get into the uh, who, who are the winners and who yeah. are the losers, um, it was interesting in the special congressional election this week in Pennsylvania, uh, when when they really geared up for this campaign early February with heavy advertising, the the Republicans the first two weeks were all ads about how great the tax yep, cuts yep, were. Yep, yep. This is this is just what you've been waiting for, folks. This this is the answer to your prayers, and then they dropped it yeah, like a hot potato. That's exactly right. Uh, because it wasn't selling. Yeah, it didn't seem to resonate. Why? That's a really good question. Um, I I think you know in that area. Uh, if people are working, they should be seeing somewhat larger paychecks uh, as a result of that. Uh, I don't know whether there was too much unemployment or people just felt other issues were bigger. Uh, but I was surprised by that. I thought that would be a selling point. It did not work. And by the way, just a, a little factoid, um, you know, Donald Trump said, well, Connor Lamb ran as a Republican. Right. He supported my tax cuts. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, no he didn't. Yeah. I uh, mean, Connor Lamb said this was a, a big payoff to the wealthy Americans yeah. and not doing much for working class Americans. That's so exactly right. He kind of stuck to the Democratic he response. Did. Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think there they, they got a little comeuppance on whether that was going to be a good campaign point. Now, again, which is significant in, when you know, when you re- remember that they really, one of the reasons they were so eager to get this bill passed in December was they needed a win. They needed Absolutely. something. They needed a message that they said, this is what we're going to take and win on in 2018. Right. Yep. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say so, that's over, by the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think, you <laughs> They know, can reshape their message? Yeah, well, no, I, I, I think the tax cut is going to resonate with some people if they have less withholding out of their paychecks. And and I wouldn't say that that, that campaign message is over yet. I didn't, didn't resonate in Pennsylvania, but we'll have to see. Also, you know, the number of months between now and the election is an eternity. I yeah. mean, so much is going to happen then. Tax cut's going to be old news. And I'm just not sure what will happen with it. Right. It, well, particularly the way... Uh, our news cycle goes these days. Yes. You know, I yes. mean, minute to minute. Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. It is. We keep talking about that. I mean, it's stories that would have a shelf life of maybe two or three days or a week. Yep. Today, it's just boom. Exactly. One true. day to the next. Exactly. Right? So, so now that we've seen this tax bill kind of play out a little bit, um, how, do you, how do you rate the winners and losers? Well, I think you have just to across, just yeah. factually across the board who, who benefits and who the most and who doesn't. You have to start with where was this bill aimed at? You know, once once you get cut through the rhetoric, this was a bill that was cutting corporate taxes. I mean, Trump's view is you help people who are unemployed or who have stagnant wages by expanding the economy. And one of the best ways to expand the economy is to let businesses keep more of their earnings and reinvest them, hire more workers. Everybody does better, kind of the rising tide. 
So when you look at the heart of this bill, it is a cut in the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. That is a significant cut. And that cut is permanent. That doesn't expire. Now, you compare that on the individual side where you have a cut from 39.6% to 37% at the top, a small cut, and that's kind of mirrored up and down. Mm -hmm. And that cut does expire in 2025. And in addition, there are a lot of other deductions taken away from individuals like mortgage interest and state taxes. So you have to start from the supposition this is a corporate tax cut. Right. And that's really what it is. That's what it is. And the premise is, as you indicated, that if you cut their taxes, they're going to pump that money into the economy, hire more people, raise wages, help workers. Absolutely right. How often has that happened? Not and often. Not often. Not often. So they it, use it to buy stock back. That's or... exactly right. Um, and, you know, they, they put something else on this that, that fosters what we're talking about here. Under Right before this tax act was in place, the law in the United States was that if you had a U.S. company that set up a subsidiary overseas to sell their products, so Coca-Cola sets up a company in France to sell soda, the earnings of that subsidiary avoided U.S. tax only as long as they were kept offshore. And so we had all this cash from U.S. companies being kept offshore because if they brought it back, they'd pay a huge tax. Mm -hmm. This law basically did away with that. So you have all this flood of cash now coming back to U.S. companies that that presumably would get invested in more workers, and you have the lower tax rates being invested in workers. What we're seeing, though, is more it's being used for stock buybacks, which is to, which is keeping stock prices high. Because, again, if your company's buying back stock, less supply, higher prices. Um, so I think it, you're right. It's, so far, we have not seen, in spite of the, the top-line headlines, a lot going to workers. Uh-huh. I, I mean, this is one, uh, I, I, particularly where Larry Kudlow has been very outspoken, saying, you know, you p- pump this money in the economy, and our growth rate's going to go up to 3 4%, and more jobs and the whole thing. Yeah, and, I mean, and they've always said that about corporate tax cuts. That's right. Said. Now, it depends when you say growth rate. I mean, growth rate to this administration often means stock prices. Mm. Um, and stock prices might go up because of this. Again, if you're doing a lot of buybacks, that's not the same thing as saying that workers get paid more. That's where we have to see. Uh, average working class American family benefits? You know, maybe. Uh, depends where they live, uh, how much state tax they pay because of the restrictions there on state tax deductions, how large a house they have. You know, if you're if you're truly middle class, you probably have a small benefit from this tax act. If you're a little more affluent, then you may start being the people that are getting hurt by the loss of deductions. Charities are particularly badly hurt by They this are, thing. and it was an inadvertent result. Uh, what the act does is it doubles the standard deduction. Uh, so let's just kind of, again, step back so a second. So good and bad. Right. right. Yeah. So the idea is, you know, as you know, when you do your taxes, you look at what the standard deduction is. You look at all your itemized deductions, and you take whichever is larger. By doubling the standard deduction, which is now $24,000 a married couple, the estimate is that fewer than 10% of taxpayers will itemize. Most people are just going to take that standard deduction. Well, if you take a standard deduction, you don't get any tax benefit from donating to charity. And charities are very worried that, you know, one of the reasons people give to charity, not the only reason, is to get a tax benefit. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, they're just going to claim the standard deduction and not itemize. What are charities going to do? The other part is that, as you know, a lot of people give to charity in their estate. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you have much higher exemptions from estate tax, makes it ne- less necessary. So it remains to be seen whether the charities aren't hurt inadvertently. That, that wasn't intentional, but it's, I think it's going to be the result. Right. How long before we see whether this, that, you know, whether this plan is working or not in terms of 
really, um, in terms of jobs and boosting the economy? Well, you know, there's two there's two tests. One is boosting the economy and jobs. Uh, and then there's others, which you alluded to earlier, adding to the deficit and causing higher interest rates and a, and a problem down the road. Right. It seems to me that the first, adding to jobs, we should know about in a year. Um, but the real concern I have is that, that the, the, you know, the Republicans say this tax cost is going to be offset with economic growth. No economist, I believe, believes that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are going to have a hit to the deficit and to the debt outstanding. And that, I think. So last Friday, a week ago today, we saw 331,000 new jobs uh, created during the month of March. And I think that's the 89th straight mm-hmm. month of positive 100,000-plus job growth. Um, and the Dow just keeps chugging along uh, higher and higher. So how, what does that tell you about the state of the American economy today? You know, the Dow is a mystery to me, uh, I have to tell you. I, I thought um, that, you know, when we start seeing inflation concerns, which we saw a little bit in January, the Dow dropped 1,000 but yeah. in a day, and then people said, eh, mm-hmm. well, we're okay there, and, and we probably are okay there. Then I thought the tariffs would be a real problem, and the yeah. Dow dropped substantially, but then it kind of said, or well, people maybe, said Donald Trump's election would right. be a problem. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, you know, something's gonna, something is still going to trigger it. It might be the Mueller report. It might be the midterm elections if the Democrats are doing well. You know, the the business community likes Donald Trump's actions. They don't like the tariffs, but they like his actions. If they see that impeded, if they see something that's going to stop him from getting done what he wants to get done, which is basically lower taxes and less regulation on business, then you might see the Dow start to struggle. And I think the Mueller report – remember last year there was a false report that Mueller was going to come out with credible evidence against Trump and the Dow dropped 350 Mm -hmm. points intraday. And then they withdrew the report and the Dow came back. That tells me that maybe when the report comes out, if it is credibly uh, hurting Trump, right. that, that could be something that stops But it. at some point, this it has Dow's going to run out of steam. It has to. Yeah, but I mean, well, that's by definition. You know, everything works until it doesn't. And overall, the economy, you would rate it as you know, healthy, I th- hurting? I think, no, I think the economy is healthy. I think that it is being propped up to healthier than it really is by things like these lower taxes and things like that. And that, again, feeds into the deficit down the road, higher interest rates and basically a reversal. But I'd say right now, you know, we're doing pretty well. And and what does that mean, would you say, projecting politically uh, for the midterms? I think it will help, obviously, help the Republicans. If, if the economy is continues to do well, uh, then I think that will help them. Um, but uh, we'll have to see. I mean, you know, again, what is doing well? Doing well means corporate earnings are going up or doing well meaning wages are going up. You know, in January, we thought wages were going up. In February, they took that away. Right. Uh, and so, you know, again, it depends. Will will voters vote because corporate earnings are going up or because their wages are going up? I think that's, that's one open question. And I think that depends on where you're coming exactly. from on the economic Absolutely. scale, right? Yeah, Absolutely that's right. good. Uh, check it out, folks. I uh, can't tell you um, what a great source it is, Washington Update, thewashingtonupdate.com. Um, and it's good to have you in studio, but, you know, we limited you to a half an hour here, so we want people to learn more. All right. You're very kind. Going Bill. to the Washington Update. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Andy Friedman with us. And uh, the good congressman from Michigan, Congressman Dan Kildee, uh, joins us next. He's up to all kinds of trouble. He's always stirring up trouble. We'll find out the latest from uh, Congressman Dan Kildee coming up next. This is the Bill Press Show. And here we go on a Friday, March 16, uh, the Bill Press Show. Not going to believe it. Just discovered during the break that it's snowing outside in Washington, D.C. 
Congressman Dan Kildee brought the snow with him. Hey, Congressman, yeah. how you doing? This is just like June weather for us in Michigan. In Michigan, yeah, right. but not here. No, it's, it's hard to just hard to keep track of. Can't can't keep up with it. Does that mean the schools are closed, Peter? I was actually just texting with uh, with my ten year old about whether or not he has school, and he says, as of now, there has been no cancellation. So they're they're. They're still on track to go to school. But I would hope not. They're not going to get a lot of whatever it is. A lot. It doesn't look like there's going to be a lot of snow. uh, But as of now, schools are still back on. Well, they close them when you can't count the snowflakes in Washington, (laughs) basically. (laughs) I I know. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Two days ahead, a warning that there might be a snowflake. Right. Right. There's a whisper of snow coming next week. Schools are closed for the next month. (laughs) Right. All right. So if it does snow and you get snowed in, you need a good book to read. How about that for a no. segue? Look there you go. <laughs> you got it. Uh, comes out Tuesday officially, but you can get your copy right now. My new book, From the Left, Life in the Crossfire, all about uh, the great days in California, great days here in Washington, D.C., helping Bernie Sanders get his uh, presidential campaign launched. Uh, it, it's a lot of fun, and uh, you can get your advanced copy, signed copy, I've been busy doing boxes of books, signing books, and getting them out to people. Uh, go to our website, BillPressShow.com, special 40% discount for our listeners and our viewers. So please take advantage of that uh, going into the weekend, and uh, you'll uh, you'll enjoy the read. I, I, I've enjoyed my life so far. You'll enjoy reading about right. it. I call it uh, Memoir Part 1. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, good. Yeah, because That's long good. way to go. Yeah. yeah, many parts to come. Congressman Dan Kildee, how do you feel about Pennsylvania 18? Well, that's amazing. I mean, I think it, there's a couple of lessons from it. One is that there is a, there's an atmospheric change that's taking place, and and you know, we can always blow it. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> yeah. uh, but that there is something more than just the specifics of that race. But I think we would miss um, one of the points by by just learning how Connor Lamb won this thing. Number one, he was authentic Connor Lamb from the beginning to the end. He didn't yep. try to say he was something else. He was from that community. He spoke to them as if he's from that community. He was the right candidate for the right district. But second, he put on a very good campaign. And we just have to look at the absentee ballots that were counted very late in the evening or early in the morning on Wednesday to see how in, I can't remember the county name, but one of the Republican counties uh, where Saccone got 58%. Big Green, I think, maybe yeah. or something, whatever. But, but it was one of the larger Allegheny ones. was the one that was most right. Democratic, so it was one of the other ones. Yeah, yeah you can tell how, yeah. well, how well I know Western Pennsylvania. But the point is this, that in the absentee ballots in one of those Republican counties, Lamb had a marginal victory in mm-hmm. absentees, which really speaks to the strength of the field organization. Because getting yeah. folks to you know fill out their absentee ballots, calling them, knocking on the door, saying, hey, have you voted— that's evidence of a really strong operation. So right. technically, it was a well-run campaign. And I think in terms of the messaging, Connor Lamb never ran as a guy who wanted to be part of Washington. He basically said, I want to represent my district. And I think sometimes we get wrapped around our own axle trying to think about what the overarching message needs to be. Mm-hmm. Campaigns for Congress are run like a series of Township supervisor races. You are running from the place to represent that place. And this is not a, uh, necessarily a criticism of the DNC or the DCCC, but I think sometimes there is this sense that we have to have this overarching theme. Campaigns are run in the specific, they are not run 
on national television. They are not run in the Washington sort of uh, uh, think, you know, uh, uh, group think. They're run out there on the streets, and you got to be from there, and you have to speak to people on about issues that they really care about. Yeah, uh, and I I kind of uh, um, point out um, or th- th- about the organization, the organization in 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 that race were the steel workers and the mine workers, yeah. the union workers who really came home to the Democratic Party. Absolutely, with Connor Lamb. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is what we've got. We've got to you know reassemble the the more traditional Democratic coalition. I I'm, I was at CNN yesterday, and I was asked this question about well, you know, uh, what does this tell the Democratic Party about the kind of candidates that I've got to run? You know, and my answer was we have to run candidates who can win in yeah, that district. That's that's exactly it. Yeah, and, and actually, so we had some great candidates this year too. Yes, I've been yes. spending a lot of time with them. And you know Connor is obviously he's an exceptional guy. I look forward to working with him, but there are a lot of other folks out there that sort of come to that come from that same basic profile in the sense that they are of and from the districts where they're running. Right now, one of the one of the interesting issues here was um, first of all, Donald Trump said, "Well, Connor Lamb ran as a Republican. He supported my tax cuts." No, he did no, not. He actually opposed them. He actually opposed right. Donald Trump's tax cuts. Right. So once again, I but, can't believe the president would be wrong about something. Who, uh, yeah, what a what a no. weird uh, <laughs> circumstance that the president would lie. That would be like lying to the Prime Minister of Canada that you actually had a trade that we have a trade deficit with Canada. That was so embarrassing. Uh, first of all, of all countries, I mean, the Canadians are so polite. They're nice people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are, right. No. You know, yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and it was just not true. It's not true. Just baldly. We pointed right. out uh, that the Department of Commerce yesterday, I just, just checked it out, reports we had a $2.7 billion surplus with Canada in 2017. Their own report on global trade which the president signed, indicates that we have a trade surplus with Canada. I mean, his his signature is on that yeah. document. And he looks Trudeau in the eye and says, no, you're wrong. I'm yeah. right. I know what I'm talking about. Uh, but one issue there but on which uh, Connor Lamb did sign with, side with the president, if you will, is on the tariffs. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you come down on this? So, now, you're the, from a working class. Yeah, this is one of those times where, you know, the president has this tendency sometimes to be emotionally right and specifically way wrong. I think he's right in the sense that we have to do something about steel. Uh, China produces half of the world's steel. They essentially are flooding the market with cheap steel in order to make them more and us less competitive. We have to deal with them. But the way the president comes to the conclusion that we need a blanket tariff and that that could actually result in our allies, with whom we have pretty robust trading relationships, Canada being a good example, would be penalized for China's behavior, doesn't make any sense. If, you, if China is the problem, deal with China. But he, I think this guy likes tariffs. He's a protectionist. Mm-hmm. His, his goal isn't so much to deal with China. His goal is that he's a nationalist. And he wants to put up, literally and figuratively, a wall around the United States and go back to the 19th many century. Many different walls. Actually. Many, many yeah, walls right. of many types. Yeah. Go Border back, wall, the economic wall. The go back to a, t- a time that we can't return to. Uh, his fantasy of the United States being a self-contained nation and economy is just that. It's pure fantasy. Mm-hmm. Peter, you had a 
point. Well, I was going to say one of the things that we that I wanted to get into uh, was Betsy DeVos uh, earlier oh. this week because the audio I think is really really amazing of when she talked to Leslie Stahl on sixty Minutes uh, about the schools. She talked specifically about her home state of Michigan. Yes, Michigan. Yes. If yeah. I can play and how the-, the schools are doing in Michigan, she is so up to speed. On how schools are doing in Michigan, so yeah, here she is. I want to play the the audio. It's a little, Mm -hmm. it's about a minute long, but this the the whole exchange is really Mm -hmm. worth hearing. Well, in places where there have been, where there is a lot of choice that's been introduced, um, Florida, for example, the studies show that when there's a large number of students that opt to go to a different school or different schools, the traditional public schools actually the results get better as well. Now, has that happened in Michigan? Where in Michigan this your home state? Michigan, yes. Well, there's lots of great options and choices for students here. Have the public schools in Michigan gotten better? Uh, I don't know. Overall, I I can't say overall that they have all gotten better. The whole state is not doing well. Well, there are certainly lots of pockets where the the, the students are doing well. But your argument that if you take funds away uh, that the schools will get better is not working in Michigan, where you had a huge impact and influence over the direction of the school system here. I hesitate to talk about all schools in general because schools are made up of individual students attending them. Well, here's what she she said. Look, I came here to talk about education. I didn't come here to talk about schools. Totally (laughs) different. Totally different issue. Right. Right. So Michigan's experience has been, let let me not nuance this, a complete and unmitigated disaster. Flint, uh, uh, Flint is, is my hometown, but Michigan generally used to perform at the top or near the top in terms of overall, overall student performance. We have steadily, under the DeVos notions of for-profit charters really being the central theme, and unregulated for-profit charters. Charters by themselves can mm-hmm. sometimes have value. Unregulated, unaccountable, for-profit charters. That's her model. It has been a disaster. Not only do the charters underperform generally, but they've taken down the whole system. The conventional, the traditional public school system is underperforming. We just got our third grade reading results uh, in Michigan from our statewide testing. We continue to fall. So there's, there is not one shred of evidence that the DeVos concept is good for anyone at all, except except the folks who now turn a profit on the public education dollar by having to decide every week whether or not the margin that they're earning on their reimbursement from the state should go into better textbook, better teacher training, higher pay for teachers, classroom support, you know, the basics of an education, or Mm. should it be returned to their their investors. Here's the interesting thing. They have a fiduciary obligation to their investors to maximize their profit, and the state doesn't require them to have any kind of an obligation oh, to, to maximize learning. To maximize their... None. Meet a minimum standard, and everything else is yours. And that minimum standard continues to fall. It has been a complete and total disaster. But her, her premise, basic premise, which uh, Leslie Stahl keeps coming back to, is that if you... Take money away from public schools. Public schools actually do better. Yeah, I mean, brilliant. It, it, and they it, and there's zero evidence of that. Of course, there's but not only just, zero evidence of that. There's incredibly painful evidence to the contrary. These kids 
in the traditional schools who are often the kids with the least support, the poorest, sometimes most damaged kids who don't have, they have the, thir- the, the, the sort of theoretical choices that Betsy DeVos thinks she, she has pre- pre- uh, presented to them. But that theoretical choice means that they somehow have the ability to get from the neighborhood that they're living in on the north side of Flint mm-hmm. to some suburban school or charter school without a parent with a vehicle to get them there or a parent who's working two jobs just to keep food on the table. The theory of choice is a lot easier to exercise if you happen to live in some degree of affluence. Sure. And, and in, in, in places in Michigan where I represent the poorest city in America, they have the theory of choice. They also have the choice to you know, to buy a million-dollar house. They just don't have the resources to yeah, do it. right. No, it's insane. Um, what's happening with this? Um, so the Senate, uh, a couple of days ago, passed this big banking bill. You know, we, the banks are doing so well, they need another big tax break from, uh, or not, not tax break in this case, right. break from, any regulations that might have limited their ability to wheel and deal over this, all this, uh, these f- 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 phony measures that they were selling, which created the crash of 2008. Yeah. It's a what big, are we doing? <clears throat> it's a mistake. And, and um, how many, was it 16 Democrats voted for it in the yeah. Senate? So and here's, this is what happens often. Something that actually started out as an idea with merit, which, would, which was to provide some regulatory relief to small community banks and even small regional banks that are not systemically uh, yeah. you know, important. Right. That if they did fail, which we don't want to see, of course, uh, the deposits are insured and the system is not going to collapse as a domino effect, that those ought to not necessarily be subject to the same scrutiny of uh, that an institution that could actually take down the economy would be subject to. Mm-hmm. One of the purposes behind Dodd-Frank. That was a good idea, and that's sort of how they started. And then I think what happened was it became a battle of interests. So 25 of the 40 largest financial institutions in this country would receive the relief that was really intended Mm. for community and regional banks. And so, yeah, it started out as a decent idea, and I think that's where some of the Democrats who support it may have locked in on this, and then as it morphed, uh, maybe maybe they felt they couldn't get away from it. But I, I think it's to be a, a boondoggle for Citibank and it's not good. Goldman Sachs and yeah. all the rest. I mean, right? some of the some of the institutions that now um, it comes to the House and comes to the House. And interestingly enough, maybe the the good news for us is that uh, Jeb Henserling, who chairs the Financial Services Committee in the House, I'm a member of yep. that committee. Yeah, he wants to go further and take more regulations away from these oh. institutions. Oh. So it's not a case of us just putting the Senate bill on the floor. What Jeb and so far Speaker Ryan have said is that they're not going to just take the Senate bill. They want to take it further. What they're really looking for is a full repeal of Dodd-Frank, uh, which would take us right back to the place we were, one foot uh, on a banana peel, the other one you know, yeah. uh, hanging on to the economy. Um, right back where we were in 2006 and 2007. And w- do we not learn any lessons uh, from from that history? Uh, it would be a, I think it's a step in the wrong direction. Again, you know, I, I, I know some of the folks in the Senate who are supporting it. I think I understand some of the reasons that they began down that path. I just think we have to take a look at the legislation as it's written. And as it's written, it goes too far. Mm-hmm.
Um, uh, yeah, maybe, as you say, the bl- a blessing if the Republicans try to overdo it, maybe they could just yeah. end up uh, helping kill the bill's chances, period. Could right? be. I, my uh, hope. We've talked uh, several times, and I guess kind of a segue from the, the discussion about schools, because as far as the Trump administration and the NRA goes, I mean, the answer, the only answer is arming teachers, right? Yeah. Um, but do we can we expect anything out of this Congress at all in the area of gun safety in the wake of Parkland? I would love to be surprised. I would love to be proven wrong, because this is a serious problem. This is not just you know, some news story that comes and goes. This is real. You know, people yeah, are dying. You know, right, more kids. Are, and and, are, and, the, and the, are, the, are, the problem with the case, of course, is that, you know, 17 terrible, tragic losses in Parkland. Uh, in my hometown of Flint, a city of less than 100,000 people, every four months we lose 17. Whoa. So it's, yeah. it's happening in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But every time one of these terrible tragedies occurs, we go through the motions of saying maybe this is the time. Now, one thing I'll say is that these kids, these students, maybe they do something, you know, because this is a new, this is a new thing, and it, to me, it's 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 encouraging in a couple of ways because it's been a long time since we've seen young people spontaneously activated by events. I mean, we all we've all been giving a lot of thought to 1968 this this year as we hit yeah. the 50 yeah. years and been a lot of you know journalism on on that that year who knows maybe maybe this is more than just a fleeting moment uh maybe this, these kids are actually onto something i i really hope that's the case uh, yeah there's an energy and a passion there that we haven't seen for yeah. a long time and they're they're not backing down i mean well, and they, you and know they, they've they obviously they they know it's going to take a lot of time you know but, i i i have some experience with this i was 18 years old when i got elected to public office and one of the things I remember about that time is that I We was, still haven't seen those pictures oh of you God. with the long hair. Yeah, I was looking at all the kids that walked out of school. I didn't see a lot of dashikis I, out I, there. Yeah, I tell you, I, I should have. I <laughs> get that thing back. But I remember being completely unfiltered and saying things that I still think right now in a way that was not quite so uh, uh, filtered. You know, and even mm-hmm. I try not to be too careful. But what, what these kids have going for them is that they're unafraid. They will say what's on their mind. Uh, you know, we we saw it when uh, Marco Rubio was challenged in Florida yeah, at that town hall yeah. meeting. Right. Uh, I think will that you, will you not take money from the NRA? I mean, we don't we don't always say it. We say it a little more delicately sometimes. These kids are just going straight for the jugular on this. I think it's good. That I, moment in particular was a real turning point. I think for a lot of people who watch this stuff, because, I mean, you know, our elected officials. You <laughs> work for us. That's right. Right. And so, like, there should be a spirit of we're going to demand answers. And if we don't get them, we're going to find somebody who could give them to us. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the kids really have embraced that. They understand that more than a lot of people. So, um, a week from years. tomorrow, uh, March 24, is the March for Life. And uh, I got to, that's going to be huge. It will be. You know, yeah, I've got a lot of friends who are coming into town just for that. Just a, a, not as many as for the Women's March, but right. it's still going to be of that scale. And and joined by hundreds of marches all across the all country. across the country. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing a couple of them back in Michigan. Uh, look, you know, I so, we've been we've been uh, wishing and hoping for this movement to come from young people since George McGovern ran in 1972, <laughs> right? 
maybe yeah. maybe at long last it comes. Who knows? And uh, on the gun safety area, what about bump stocks? I mean, Donald Trump keeps saying it's done, it's done, it's done. It's not done. First of all, the NRA says no, and so Donald Trump won't do it. Uh, the NRA says no, so Paul Ryan won't do it, or Mitch McConnell. I mean, these guys are all full-time employees of the National Rifle Association. That's their job. They have this side job of being, you know, members of the United States government. But they are 100% under the control of the NRA. I, I did a bump stock bill. Uh, myself, a guy named Ryan Fitzpatrick from uh, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, Dina Titus from Nevada, and Dave Trott, a Republican from Michigan. Two Democrats and two Republicans. It was a really simple bill. We sort of took our time. Basically, we said... They are governed by the National Firearms Act. So if you can't have a machine gun, you can't have a device that turns a semi-automatic weapon into, into a, a machine gun. gun. It makes sense. And, and we had worked sense. hard, and we had actually consulted with, with the gun advocates. And they were, like, saying, well, that, that seems like the logical approach. Until we dropped the bill, and then they came out, full stop, no way, can't do it. Because they, they operate on this notion that any regulation at all is an intrusion on the Second Amendment, which is, you know, look, I support all the amendments of the to the Constitution, but they all come with some reasonable uh, restriction in terms of the exercise of those rights. I mean, there's only one amendment to the Constitution that I ever disagreed with, and then they repealed it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was prohibition. <laughs> <laughs> You probably didn't observe it while it was in. Not that no, you were around then. No, but, no, but right. I would have thought hard. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. No, it is true. I mean, um, in in the famous decision, the Supreme Court decision, where uh, the Supreme Court overruled the District of Columbia's tough gun safety measures. Right. Justice Scalia said, "Don't, don't." Interpret this as meaning there are no limits to the Second Amendment. Right. I mean, I, I just reread that the other day. It's very, very strong what he says is no, there are real limits to the Second Amendment. Right. This is just this one decision for this one district. Right. So the people who say, well, you know, the Supreme Court has said anything goes, it's not true. No, no. I, it, 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 but I mean, let's face it, we, we know what, what the NRA stands no, for. I, I, you know? I have to ask you about this, and I was just checking to, to find it. I read it this morning, and I couldn't find it the exact word for word, but um, I don't want to get you in trouble here, but yes, I do. Um, hey, it's former, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was in India, gave a speech a couple of days ago, and she was asked, well, what happened? How did you lose? And, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but very close. She said, well, we did very, very well in the forward-looking parts of the country, the West Coast and the East Coast. We didn't do too well in the more backward-looking part of the middle of the country. Yeah. How's that strike you coming from Michigan? Not so good. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. She actually said— Yeah, I, I, that, I read that, and I was not only disappointed, I was pretty angered by it. Because those of us who live in parts of the country that have been left behind— we didn't choose to leave ourselves behind. <clears throat> what has happened in the middle of America, in our older industrial cities especially, but even in rural areas, is that we have had policy that has consciously allowed these communities to be left behind and then to essentially blame. And to hear like somebody who uh, theoretically shares the values that brought us all to politics in the first place, to buy into this notion that these places are not forward-looking, 
we're as forward-looking as everyone. What we need is the resources to get to the place we're looking at, looking forward. People who live in Flint are as forward-looking as somebody sitting on the beach in Santa Monica. But the difference is we don't have the tools to get to the place that we're looking at in the, in the, in the, in the future. And, and it's, that's the result of policy. Some of those yeah. policies which yeah. uh, during Democratic and Republican administrations have been allowed to continue. So the Democrats aren't blameless in this. No. But when you look at, you know, if you're talking, you know, Wisconsin or Missouri or Michigan or Illinois, I mean, and a statement like that kind of shows why she is where she is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Great to see you, Congressman. Right. Thanks, Thanks for too. coming in. All right. Have a great weekend. And happy St. Patrick's that's Day. That's right. Not that you're going to celebrate. Oh, no. Just for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great weekend, folks. We'll see you on this Monday. This is the Bill Press Show.